Hey, Circle Tick listeners, thanks for joining me. Today, we are talking to director Claudio Fay about the first feature film he directed, the 2003 action-adventure Coronado. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive, and no plot turn is sacred, so you have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it is a million times better if you watch the film first. So, before we get started, how to watch Claudio Fey's Coronado. Unfortunately, this is a DVD-only watch. I am sorry. I wish it was streaming somewhere, but as of the recording of this show, it's DVD-only, guys. So... You can get it on Amazon for about 10 bucks and on eBay for about 5 I know it's a lot to ask, but I promise you, Claudio has a ton of great insights in this episode, and you're going to want to have the inside track. Claudio Fay's Coronado. Get a hold of it. Give it a watch. All right, guys. Everybody one, please. Voila. Alright guys, pictures up. Pictures up! Pictures up! That's real sound. Sound speed. Claudio Fay interview, take one. Mark. And action! This is The Circle Take. Conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film. And over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is director and writer Claudio Fay. Originally from Switzerland, Claudio studied filmmaking in his home country of Switzerland and made a few short films there before making his way to Hollywood to direct his first feature film, Coronado, which he also co-wrote. Claudio has since directed six more feature films over the past 12 or so years, putting his flair for cinematic action on the Tom Berenger-led Sniper film series, as well as his 2006 sequel to the Sony Pictures hit film Hollow Man from 2000. Claudio most recently directed his second film in the Sniper series in 2017, which reunited Tom Berenger and Billy Zane back to the series and their original roles. We'll talk more about that later. Right now, let's get started. Claudio Fay, welcome to The Circle Take. Thank you very much, Jason Schmidt. Let's dive right in. Let's talk about uh, how this film got off the ground. Uh, it seems like there's a, a little Swiss mafia in play here that gets this film <laughs> off the ground. A two-part question how did you sort of get this film off the ground? And then the, was there a distribution in place from the get-go? So to answer your second question first, that's a clear no. Okay, so this was just a roll in the dice project. Yeah, I think uh, otherwise it would never have gotten off the ground. Hmm. Uh, there was not even a bond in place. Um, it was a bunch of private investors who came up with the money or believed in our ideas, but we did not have distribution uh, in place beforehand, which allowed us to be pretty free in what we were doing. And I think most of the distributors probably would have weighed in and asked us to be a bit more safe in, <laughs> in the making of this movie. <laughs> to answer your first question, it started with, and you said Swiss Mafia. And uh, yeah, I was sort of worried that that might be the case, in fact, because I had made lots of short films when I was still in Switzerland. And these short films somehow got seen by a private investor in Switzerland who called me up after my last short film and said, you know, I have a significant amount of money that I would like to invest in, in movies and I like your short films and particularly the last one and I would like to pay for your first feature. 
that was literally what he said and i thought wow that's that's that sounds like mafia um <laughs> you know, this some, also some money laundering also right sounds like a director's like dream come it's true where some guy calls you out of the blue and offers completely. you and it was enough money to actually to to pay for a movie uh for a smaller movie anyways and and i i didn't know if i could believe this man uh i met him he turned out to be completely as swiss as he gets like completely trustworthy and very upfront and just mm-hmm. super honest and very nice um, had all the right intentions. He was a fan of movies and liked my films and thought, well, let's help somebody out and do what I did not get when I was young. And he came through. And with that support, of course, I didn't tell him, oh, yeah, wire the money here. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, let's be aware. You might as well. You could. Probably the risk of throwing it out the window is probably about equal. <laughs> right. But yeah, let's try. Eventually, then, with that support, I approached Volker Engel and Mark Weigert who had just come off of Independence Day and some other Roland Emmerich movies as visual effects people. And I knew that Volker and Mark were getting into production, wanted to produce movies on their own. So I approached them through a mutual contact and presented this, uh, or knew that we had a shared desire to make a movie. Did you have the concept of the film in your mind at that point? There was a couple of projects that I discussed with this investor, and one of them then came about in discussion with Volker and Mark, and really the creative impetus behind it was the Tintin comic books that all three of us grew up with and we thought well those are these comic books and the tone and the feel of those adventures that Tintin goes through we always felt would make great movies and that's the inspiration for the Indiana Jones yes character as well exactly right so that's so, all and romancing the stone has right. a little bit of that in there so we, we felt like well that's not only a genre that we love ourselves and wanted to try our hand at but also what helped us is their expertise and connections in the visual effects community we knew that by utilizing visual effects in a clever way, we can turn out a movie that looks you know, is a multitude of the money that we actually spend. Now, let me ask you a little bit about that because I haven't seen the short films that you've made. Mm-hmm. Are there visual effects components no, to that? Not really. I had, ironically, the ones that really mattered in, in by way of presenting me as a potential director for this first movie they had no visual effects they were they're were very you know cheap the typical student films that you would see i did ironically in the very very early days when i was you know about 12 or so with my cousin in switzerland we did completely take on board some of the techniques that i eventually that we eventually use in coronado in very sort of rudimentary short films that we did by you know building miniatures in our basement there was even in in one film that was very heavily inspired by the never-ending story we had a, a bridge sequence where we glued matchsticks together on two s- strings and and spawn over a big chasm in a very rudimentary miniature and then combined that with rear projection shots and superimposing flashes that would go into the matchsticks and light them on fire and the bridge falling apart all the terribly bad but the approach was very similar and I, right i think i always had a a knack for visual effects and a good understanding of what they can do but definitely the connection into the connection to the visual effects industry was through Volker and mark and that but, connection gave you the foundational confidence to yes. move forward into making yes. that kind of movie yes absolutely so obviously aspiring filmmakers all want to know how you got the job and it sounds like the phone rang 
is, is what happened. Yes. I mean, it was really one of those things that, that I think never happened. And, and it did happen, particularly also because this investor then came through and actually did yeah. invest money. Nowhere near as much as he wanted to, um, but enough. He was just providing seed money right. to get other investors interested, um, mostly from Europe, out of Europe, but also some American investors to yes. round up the budget eventually. It's always key to have that first. No one wants yeah. to be the first guy. Yes. Exactly. Once you've got that first investor, then exactly. somebody's like, well, if, if so-and-so invested, yeah. I'll, I'll do it too. Yeah. And then, so you wrote the script with, was it sort of a group effort? It sort of well, it was really the group effort between the three of us, between Volker, Mark, and myself, uh, who wrote the script and came up with the story. And we wanted to keep a tight rein on what is in the movie and conceptualize these sequences very early on, with an eye to what can be done, and to maximize our approach, knowing exactly, you know, like the the idea of the ospreys coming out through from behind a waterfall. That was one of those Tintin inspired elements. Tintin and the Picard, no, the Sun Temple, I believe, where he disappears behind a waterfall and then th- throws, tosses a rock from out from behind a, a cave that is behind the waterfall. And we thought, well, we need to one-up that. <laughs> can't be a rock. It right. could be a helicopter. And then it was always like, oh, right, well, c- can that be done? And uh, so we immediately started breaking down these shots and these elements into what we could pull off for right. the money and and always leaning heavily on miniatures, even though the helicopter going through the waterfall was not a miniature. That was a full CG effect. Right. But many of these things were miniatures and miniature approaches that we knew we could do. Yeah, the, the whole writing happened between the three of us, really. And how long was the writing process? Does that also include, because I'm always curious to see how far into or beyond production, the, yeah. the script continues to morph into the final quote-unquote shooting draft. I mean, look, in, in hindsight, all of this happened way too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> we were incredibly fortunate to be able to put this together in this incredibly fast timeline. I, I'll say maybe from beginning, the first idea to start of principal photography was a little over a year which is i think unheard of and from the point where you guys were basically just shooting ideas around to the point where you were actually shooting, shooting i think that's that's roughly maybe it was one and a half years or so but but very very short yeah and then of course the script of course kept evolving throughout as they always do when you shoot a movie there's never like on maybe a tv show where you have to shoot verbatim what's on the page it evolved and and changed and and grew throughout including into production and then including into post-production in fact right right and i think there's a heavy recut of the movie some of which i i regret that we did because we maybe lost a little bit of confidence you know somewhere in in post-production about what we had done and started cutting it up in places where now in hindsight well, in hindsight, it would do so many things differently, right, of course. Right. But, but uh, since I just recently saw it again, I'm like, oh, why would we do this? Uh, it used <laughs> to be really good. But maybe I'm also idealizing it. Maybe um, maybe we did everything for the right reason. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life tweaking an old <laughs> yeah, movie, exactly. as George Lucas will tell you. <laughs> That's right. So how did the casting process go when, once you guys were sort of getting into pre-production? Yeah, yeah. Which well, I, I assume was, I, I mean, it seems like, um, I mean, as we kind of get into the production process, it seems like yeah. production was um, preceded by a lot of model building, right? Yeah. Well, the models, I think they were being built. What we did do, we, we had a significant amount of pre-visualization with, in the computer with um, mm-hmm. crude CG models that we built to, to kind of have a proof of concept. Well, 
and actually maybe you have to back backtrack we had um some conceptual paintings some production illustrations that we did early on from the production designer uh michael meyer uh who was also a roland emmerich veteran mm-hmm. um and and these production paintings of key elements key moments of the movie key production value moments of the movie helped us get more investors on board and round up the budget a bit that in conjunction with i think 45 minutes worth of previs that we mm-hmm. did are you and, a storyboard guy mm-hmm. Uh, not anymore. At the time, you be, were. At the time, absolutely. I thought that every every shot needs to be storyboarded. And were you showing up on set with like a, a binder full of storyboards? Yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah. We had entire showboards of this is exactly the angles. And, and I, I then over the time realized that that can be very um, limiting and send you down the wrong path and get in the way of an actual scene. But back then, I thought, yeah, it's just in collecting all the elements. That's mm-hmm. really what it felt like. At the time, did it feel like using storyboards gave you some confidence on set? Probably, and I think it, it gave confidence to everybody else involved in it. And certainly, some of the scenes, I'd say there's a bridge scene in there that is fairly complicated and was shot all across the schedule from very beginning to very end, uh, or the chase scene as well. And it helps if you have a very clear path of what you want to do, and then you can communicate that with everybody by way of storyboards or previous. And that's helpful, because then you get everything, you're not right. missing anything. You can anything. go back to the storyboards, yeah. if it doesn't have an X through it, you know, you got to see Exactly, you still need that element. Right. And that's essential for stuff where several departments have to contribute to, mm-hmm. to a scene. You can't just wing it. But on on uh, many things, even including action sequences sometimes, it's beneficial to wing it a bit. And, to and, let... and now your, your more recent films, mm-hmm. you don't storyboard anymore i do storyboard when necessary but i try to stay away from scenes that don't need to be storyboarded and i i prefer as as a more of a collaborative tool to get a, a dialogue yeah. between departments yeah. uh, and and to allow the actors to choose to walk there and not there on the day right you know, give them freedom and not not predetermine everything i think it also storyboarding often happens without the involvement of the dp and you go like, well, but why do I hire somebody who knows really, you know, who's really good at com- composition and I tell him exactly how to compose a shot? That seems counterintuitive. Right. So sometimes overhead sketches, overhead schemes are more productive because it, yes, it gives the AD enough information about this is roughly the shot count, the setup count, and the order of things and the logistics, even mm-hmm. down to, let's say, stunt coordinators know, okay, there's an event right here and that's, that requires a wire gag or whatever. But it doesn't completely lock you into this or that angle. It communicates enough to all the departments, but it doesn't predetermine their work. It still allows them to come in and make something better. But it's, sometimes you do need storyboards. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need precise previs, and it, and it can be helpful that way. But it's a tricky balance, I thought. Okay. And then and just to circle back to the casting process, mm-hmm. at what point in pre-production did you guys start casting? And, I, yeah. and how close to production day one yeah. did you have everybody locked in the key positions? I forget exactly. I mean, what's what was different, distinctly different from other movies and it has to do with the fact that we did, have, didn't, did not have a distributor attached is that the movie's green lighting was not as cast dependent as it would normally be. So we were not necessarily chasing big stars. Our most recognizable name was John Reese davies because of Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings. In but he was, more, he was a cameo, really, yeah. almost, right? I know our casting director pushes very hard to cast somebody in the lead who then has become... And she said, well, she's going to be a big star. And, and I, I thought, oh, she's wrong. And I was completely wrong. <laughs> she became a big star. <laughs> yeah, she became a huge star. <laughs> 
But these things, I had that in another movie where somebody was begging me to hire that actor because he's going to break and it's going to be huge. And I, and that time, I listened to that casting director, and she mm. was right. And the, the two actors that she begged me to cast in the movie became went on to become significant stars. It doesn't reflect back. Right. You know, it doesn't go back to your movie. If right. your movie goes comes out before they have made it, uh, it, it people don't go back and right. watch it because... You know, or rarely so anyway. So it wouldn't have made a huge difference. And I'm very happy with the people that we cast. I think actually, particularly Claire and Arnett, um, Kristen Tatilo and Clayton Rohner, I think had a great amount of chemistry that I think helped salvage some of the scenes that maybe were not particularly greatly written. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that chemistry between those two actors is sort of paramount to yeah. most of the yeah. scenes in the film where, if and I don't want to call them sitting around talking scenes because there's actually very few of those in the yes. movie. Yes. But in in those moments, it really is those two people holding it together. And I tell you that I mean, if I, in hindsight, looking back, I we didn't give them the greatest material to work with, and they did a, a fantastic job with it. They really came to play and contributed to a great degree. So yeah. the the writing definitely informed by them. They came and and contributed. Uh, um, to those scenes. Would they come to set with some ideas on the pages that day? And yes, say, hey, of what course. Said this? Of course, of course. And yeah, you were absolutely. completely open. I'm to always open to this. this. I think it's there's a benefit to listening to actors. They are they are in their position because of because of their talent, and they always have something to say. So you better listen. Ultimately, if they're doing their job properly, nobody knows that character better than they do. No, absolutely. I mean, and I think also, I think I've learned this over the years, over you know several movies that I've done now, that you are better off entirely giving them their character. And by the point in, in the moment where you cast someone in that role, whether it's your first, second or third choice, you tell them, okay, from now on, you are, you are that. When you character. say giving them the character, you mean turning the over. character over yes, to them absolutely. and allowing them to run with it. They're and the it experts. And you, I, I like addressing them as their character. On set. It, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not not talking about this. Has nothing to do with method acting or so. That's not the point. But they are the supreme authority about themselves mm-hmm. as a character. So as a director, you have the privilege to be sort of a voice in their head. You can approach them and and ask their character directly. So why did you why do you say this? Why do you do this? Right. What, what's going on? Why didn't you? What do you feel about that guy? And you know, you can talk to them in a very intimate fashion and and i more often than not the actors are willing to answer back ask their characters because it allows them to explore their character better interesting yeah let's sort of jump into the nuts and bolts of the production process now Mm -hmm. real quickly uh how many days was this shoot I, i forget i think you can guess well, I know <laughs> that's here. Here's here goes to you know. It, it shows you how chaotic this was. Uh, chaotic. I don't mean to say that we didn't know what we're doing, but we kind of didn't know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> the schedule became shorter because we were over budget about two weeks in, significantly so that we had to Press cut stuff up. out, compress stuff, and compress days. That went along with a big turnover in the crew, which is very traumatic. But I, I want to say we had as, as little as four weeks at the end of the day in Mexico with a fifth week. Of, and you shot entirely in Mexico, right? Uh, no, no. Uh, the, the first unit was, was all in Mexico. That's correct. So we had, I, I want to say, four weeks of principles and then a fifth week of second unit and then another three days of extreme second unit, splinter unit, mm-hmm. to get some plates and then 
we had a, I think a whopping f- additional four weeks of miniature shooting in LA. Oh wow! Miniature shooting goes really slowly. I mean, yeah. so and the crew is much smaller, and you don't pay SAG actors and stuff right. like that. You're in a parking lot uh, somewhere, and just but so all together, it was a significant amount of days. But a miniature shoot is not. I mean, visual effects shoot is not. It's the it's same kind of part of the post production almost. Right. On your principal A camera actors mm-hmm. on set days, were you doing five or six day weeks or oh, six day weeks. Six day weeks for yeah. sure. Yeah. So Yeah, that I won't forget. <laughs> yeah. That's a big push. Yeah. And then uh what kind of cameras were you guys using? It seemed like you were using a, a kind of a wide variety of cameras. Uh yes. We were principal photography was done with digital cameras, the same the Sony some Sony cameras that back in the day were the talk of town. Um the very cam maybe they were remember. being used by George Lucas at the same time for okay. episode one, for Star Wars episode one. People can look that up. Yes, exactly. I forget exactly what it is. But it's a, a, you know, a fancy piece of equipment right, right. that everybody was all gaga about. So we shot this digitally. Now, of course, the miniatures, whenever miniatures would have to do something, you would have to shoot them in uh, increased frame rates and slow motion. And, and at the time, the digital cameras could not do Couldn't that. do. They could do maybe 60 frames a second, but that's nowhere not near enough. enough. You need yeah. to be able to go up to up up to 120 or 200 frames, I believe, even, right. for the big explosions. And there's an equation. There's a, a closely held secret by um, miniature guys that... Every time you reduce the scale, you, yes, have, to exactly. the you have to up the frame rate exactly. by so much, then exactly. they, they know the numbers. and Exactly. And then sometimes, <laughs> well, but now it's just the, the truck rolling over the bridge, so it means we need to just go a little bit under what the rate actually would be because and, and you know everybody has their own secret sauce about right. what is the right frame rate, but it, it, you need variation there. Yeah. And then how many people were on the main crew in Mexico? Uh, <laughs> looking at the credits again, when I watched the movie a couple of nights ago, again, after 10 years, I realized that the majority of our crew seemed to have been drivers. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're shooting out in remote locations. I, and no, just took it no, I think they probably they were. Just, just, um, they just hired lots of friends, I believe. Okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> they just probably were the only ones making money off like of attrition. it. It's just like, today your driver is this guy, <laughs> know, and I tomorrow it's a different dude. There was a tremendous turnover in our crew in Mexico for various reasons, and I think the driving department was, was also a part of that. I think we might have changed transportation captains or something but anyways uh, the the crew was on i don't know it was like 40 to 60 people something like that on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah and then in visual effects we'll call that you know part two of your shoot because it's a completely different beast yeah that's like maybe 10 guys or so yeah yeah that's about maybe 10 10 to 20 depending on what the effects are i mean whenever a miniature had to do perform particular tricks like the the bridge for instance we had the bridge in three different scales i believe or two at least two different scales and the larger scale which probably was a quarter or eight scale even that was sitting on pneumatics and could collapse on cue and then it had to be rebuilt so we had three cameras at least running on each time that the bridge would collapse and then it had to be reset and that took about four hours so we put a lot of manpower on those days to be able to rebuild exactly reset as fast as possible and then in post-production, which really I think was the core contributor to whatever success the movie might have had, uh, I think it's really credit to a core crew of less than a dozen digital artists that we were extremely fortunate 
finding at the beginning of post-production housing at a in a warehouse close to LAX, basically locking them up for about <laughs> six six months, not letting them out, doing the visual effects uh, post-production on it. Did you guys have any unions involved? I mean, obviously no. it's SAG. SAG was, other than SAG, that was no. The there's only some union. Me- Mexican unions, but I forget exactly what. Uh, what like what, labor unions in Mexico yeah, or something like that? The, well, just the, uh, but not any not any film unions. No film unions. Yeah, in Mexico. Okay. Um, for but the crew, I, I forget exactly who were part of those, and uh, there was some union. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just it was don't all remember. very sketchy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's not not because of them, but <laughs> I just forget. <laughs> so, because there's so many miniatures on this, mm-hmm. did your team have a a really clear idea from the onset of that's a miniature gag that's a cgi gag yeah yeah it was the breakdown of for everything the approach had to be absolutely you know it was planned in a very german way thanks to Volker and mark i mean they know exactly what needs to be done and we 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 would stick to these plans very religiously and it was a big task for particularly the camera department to be on board with what's going to be real and if it's not real, how it's going to be extended. And and now this film was made at this sort of turning point in film where you were able to shoot digitally mm-hmm. as your main camera, mm-hmm. but digital wasn't quite there that you could do it entirely. Yeah. So you're shooting high speed with film. Yeah. And then you're also doing a significant number of your set piece visual effects with miniatures, yeah. which you know flash forward to now mm. that's a thing of the past well it is and it isn't i mean yeah, it is absolutely i mean I, I mean obviously there are miniatures still used yeah, in yeah. certain instances but before to, you know, almost to, more for nostalgia than than for necessity yeah, right? yeah 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 when a filmmaker like you know yeah. wants to shoot on film because it's cool or you know do a miniature because it's neat i will say that if you look at folker england mark weigert their big claim to fame in, in hollywood was the miniatures that they blew up for Roland Emmerich's first Independence Day. Mm-hmm. That was a had a significant impact on the film industry. Also won Folker an, an Academy Award. So everybody knew that Folker and Mark are absolute supreme experts Masters. when it comes to miniatures and have these right connections. And there was this company, Hunter Gratzner, which now has transformed into New Deal Studios, that were one of the absolute experts with regards to miniatures. And they have now morphed into the digital world and now recently also into VR. But it was sort of the, I wouldn't say the last hurrah, but one of the last hurrahs of miniature work. Shortly after that, like five years after Coronado, miniatures were definitely being phased out. And only people like Christopher Nolan and most recently, in fact, even also Damon Chazelle for First Man built lots yeah. of miniatures for for that movie also with the same guys with hunter gratzner or now new deal studios they did of all course. those miniatures there is something romantic about miniatures and there's a they're tactile you know and they're real and there's no argument about whether it looks real or not because it's re- it is real right physically right. real you don't have to worry about is the lighting matching exactly the lighting is the lighting it is it is exactly what you get there's tremendous benefits to that but it also locks you in. It prevents you from changing things in post. It, it's just not how films are being made anymore yeah. these days. Do you feel like you learned sort of this incredibly robust, deep understanding and knowledge of a filmmaking technology on this film that you really didn't get to use again? Oh, totally. No, absolutely. It's It was a tremendous uh, learning curve. In fact, I, I still benefit from it uh, today 
because many of the people that worked on on these visual effects, uh, whether it was for the first time or at the beginning of their careers at Coronado, many of them had stellar careers afterwards in the visual effects field, including winning Oscars and Emmys, and several of them, in fact. Given that we that I stay friends with them, <laughs> I, I keep getting the chance to work with them, for them, being hired by them to help produce things. I think what I personally took out of Coronado is what you said, like a deep understanding of visual effects that don't only doesn't only apply to miniature technology, but just the way that you can break up a shot and break up sequences and different technologies and approaches and visual effects that I think has been ingrained in my approach to filmmaking, which still is very helpful. I think someone watching your film as as an outside audience person would look at this film and assume, oh, well, here's a guy who obviously is a visual effects guy. Mm -hmm. That's why this is his first film. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. That's true, yeah. So did you feel like you were constantly playing a game of catch-up on set and learning sort of about the process as it was happening funny enough not really that's not what it felt like to me and i think it has to do with the fact that i spent even though we wrote this fairly quickly but i spent at least a full year every day of the week with Folker and mark mm. coming up with it and understanding the entire approach and developing the approach to everything with them in a very you know detailed level so as the gags were being developed in the quote-unquote writer's room yeah they would break it down to you on an yeah. element by element basis yes. and say or right, claudio this is how that gag will be yes. executed exactly in a way that was yeah detailed enough for you to feel like when you got to the set you you knew what you were in for absolutely and there was no i don't know i i, I did realize that i think i had a, a knack for it to begin with and it was not something that had to be explained too many times were you one of those kids who was like watching like behind the scenes stuff on tv oh, totally. or something or i couldn't get enough of that yeah absolutely do you think that informed your understanding of how visual effects are built like it, kind of being one of those curious kids who wanted to know like kind of how a magician does their trick kind of thing i always had to pinch myself throughout the process because suddenly i was what felt like in hollywood doing a movie if i felt like a kid in a candy store you know i suddenly had everything that i always read about that i always dreamed about right in front of me and i was doing this what i read about was true and so it was not giant remote control tank yeah this totally is the thing ever it was unbelievable and i know exactly i didn't know exactly the frame rate at which it needed to be shot but that's that's, that's not my task i understood well, this shot needs to be break, broken up in these pieces, and here goes the blue screen, and here's why we need tracking markers, and, and all the rest of it. So that became very natural, because I've always dreamed of making this kind of a movie. That's why you know people say the, the first movie of a director is always the, the most honest movie, right? Right. And I think there's some great truth to that. There, it's, it's the movie that I most wanted to make. Do you feel like throughout that process, you got to make that movie no <laughs> of course not <laughs> no i think that's correct that i think throughout the process yes of course i firmly believed in it i had tricked myself into believing that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread even I, through those four weeks of miniature shooting oh yeah no throughout post-production at some point in post-production there comes the and i think that's true with every movie to a degree but at some point there comes this reckoning, you know, the, the lights are being turned on and go like, oh, wait a minute, what? That's called a first assembly, right? Yes, the first assembly is the most yeah. brutal moment most of the time, particularly on the first movie where you don't quite know what you're in for. I think we all had supreme confidence 
that this movie is going to do X, Y, and Z. And it, and it, and it, then it only did X and Y. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we had, I remember when we were deep in post-production, just about to finish the movie, we cut, started cutting trailers. And, and since we had so much really spectacular material, the pitch trailers that we cut looked fantastic. I mean, they look absolutely fantastic and they still do to this day. If you look at it, you're like, oh, wow, that's a really cool movie. It's not to be confused with the movie. Right. You know, it's, it doesn't... But then we showed these trailers around and, and people were going gaga over it. We suddenly had Mario Kassar and Oliver Stone and CAA and, you know, big people being interested in this based on the trailer. They went, they came to our facility and looked at this miracle that was happening. That's what it felt to us. So that reinforced our belief that this is going to be a home run. This is going to be fantastic. You know, every, this is going to be fantastic. And then, naturally, that didn't quite happen. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's where you go like, oh, maybe I didn't exactly make the movie that I wanted to make, so let's do another one. <laughs> How long was the editorial process? And, and I guess, well, that's a, a multi-part question. Yep. So did you do the traditional editor's cut, director's cut, producer's cut? Yeah. But you, being a producer on this film, essentially, you never really quite left the room. No, 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 of course not. No, the the editorial process, of course, at some point was done. Uh, and then we went into visual effects production. But since visual effects were such a, a big part of most of every scene, they reinformed how it needed to be cut. So, right. so, so you're constantly adjusting the cut yeah. as visual effects come yeah. in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Was there a big difference between the director's cut and the final cut? Yeah, I film? think so. I think so. I, and I forget exactly. I know there's significant scenes that got cut out of the movie and... It was a little too long and took you, too you long. You talked about a little restructuring, you guys and then, did? Yes, and at the end, we had... It was never meant to be a flashback uh, structure or a frame story structure, mm -hmm. but we just felt that the movie dragged a bit, if I remember correctly, and um, didn't have the, the spark that we wanted, and some of it was maybe... Yeah, just not, not really well, well written enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, or maybe not well, well directed enough, whatever was the case. So you guys were just looking for that sort of grab at the beginning of the film? Yeah, I suppose, and, and, and then the her telling the story supposedly in prison to those guards gave mm -hmm. us a chance to be a little smart about it and frame things and you know what was it originally things. shot in that ambiguous way or did you kind No, to... that the frame story of course was then that was just one of the gags that we shot it in a way that we think at the beginning that she's behind bars and then revealed that it's the other way around that that of course was a uh, that was in in the structure of the scene originally. In the structure of the reshoot of the, of the scene, reshoot. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was never that scene was never part of the original script. Okay. The, the, the original. So that was, was a pick completely. Up. Yeah, it was a pickup. Uh, original script was completely linear. Okay. But it just didn't have uh, didn't move maybe the way that we thought it would. And then I think that's where I believe we lost a little bit of confidence in things that probably worked better than we thought they did at the time but it's just it's i mean it's an opinion that i have right now it's, right, it might, right you know who knows see me in another 10 years and yeah, yeah. change my and mind. it's i'm, I'm not sure i'll be thinking about it that much in 10 years <laughs> this is the part where i like to uh invite you to talk about sort of the lessons learned and mm -hmm. mistakes that were made and stuff and so i like to kind of start off pretty basically <clears throat> um just talking about some choices that were made or or decisions that were made um, was there something that happened along the way that cost you uh, a piece of coverage where a decision that was made on set wound up putting you in a situation where you weren't able to get the coverage you set out to get? 
Well, I think that was the every day. <laughs> <laughs> every day. No, I, I well, I've well, and, and this would be your you're on set with your storyboards at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got this structured set of <laughs> shots that you're gonna try and get every day. Okay, I'm trying not to throw anybody under the bus here, but for some reason, at some point, the grip department, the grip department couldn't find the blue screen anymore. Yeah. And as you can see, this movie was heavily reliant on blue screens. It's <laughs> like, like every, oh, we every, every fourth shot in the movie exactly. seems well, like it's a comp. And um, but it but then it turned out no, they very well know where the blue screen is, and it's just not here. And they're not going to tell us where it is until we pay them. <laughs> they're holding it ransom. Yes. Oh, man. So that was only one of the stories. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt like... It Did was, you eventually pay them off and get and the, the blue screen And then I forget how it resolved, but I knew that I kicked the dirt a lot right. <laughs> in frustration. And, <laughs> and you know, I angry. guess you're shooting in Mexico. It's not like you're shooting in the middle of LA where you can just get another blue screen. Yeah, no, no. Screen. We were out in, in, in Cuernavaca, uh, Morelos, which was also ironically known to be a big kidnapping territory. There was always this threat of kidnapping from the drug cartels hanging over us that everybody talked about and now they instead of well thankfully they only kidnapped the blue screen <laughs> i know i don't know exactly how it resolved but it did resolve somehow but every day felt like i remember this was such a, a reckoning for me as a director i you know went in with such enthusiasm and blue-eyed naivete and <laughs> and everything and very quickly in production every morning driving up to set was like man you're it's torture because what is going to happen today that doesn't work? Right. Then we also had, like I said, the, the first week or so, we made not a single one of our days. Off to a good start. Yeah. It's com- completely was impossible, impossible to follow through with our schedule. And we felt like we were so well prepared and everybody was so, you know, buttoned down and, and uh, we knew what we wanted, but we never came up with a completed day. Never. And not, not even close to it. Were you so, rolling your days over or pushing it off the schedule? Pushing off the schedule, and uh, we were trying to find our heads here. You know, it was it was really like, it didn't not worry like, about that. Let's just get tomorrow, 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 and see what happens. And exactly. then you didn't get that either. Didn't get that either, and just accumulated. So we had to take some action. We brought in an additional assistant director from LA. He then pointed to what he thought was the actual problem, which was in crew related. And very much, allocation of personnel. So they shouldn't have hired that guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember we made a change. I think two or three weeks. Three weeks in makes no sense. Probably two weeks in. I forget exactly. Like it was a big all personnel rollover. Yes, but a massive one. Right. And with lots of hardship and somebody who was on the movie for a long time and did a lot of preparation and just felt like it was not the right fit. And that was based on the recommendation of the first AD, the new first AD, AD who also sort of replaced the Mexican AD. And right. Came in sort of like put out some fires. Yes, exactly. At the beginning, of course, as a first-time director, yes, I've done short films. This is not... My short films have nowhere near had the complexity of this and right. not the longevity and all that. And the stakes. So, of course, then I look at myself and go like, well, am I wrong here? What do I... You know? You start downing yourself and that's that's not good. That's probably also when I think a completion bond would probably have shut us down and say, all right, let's <laughs> stop this nonsense and regroup. We then brought in, uh, I'm not sure I should mention <laughs> names, but so we, we made a big change. 
an essential essential crew member came in and uh, had essentially no preparation to uh, continue the work and we felt like well with no preparation that seemed to be so against everything we believed you know that people we thought needed to exactly know what it is that we wanted to do in order to be able to complete it well it's such a complex yes like you said there's sequences in this film that were shot in bits and pieces throughout weeks exactly. and weeks. So how do you keep uh, keep abreast of it? But that that new Mexican crew and principal who came in outperformed anybody. It was just suddenly, suddenly we started making our days two weeks in, and things really turned around for us. And at the end of the shoot, at the end of the shoot last week or so, we felt like now we have the crew that we should have had from the beginning. Right. And what we were able to make up was immense. I mean, really. So you're making your days and more at that point. Suddenly we ended up shooting with two cameras, sometimes three three cameras. We were able to mark off as much as 60 setups a day. And suddenly we were, you know, really, really cooking with gas. But that was a big learning curve and a very painful one, too. Yeah. Were there any mistakes that you didn't realize had happened until you were in post-production? Oh, I'm sure there were plenty. Like missing him, <laughs> but there's so many. I forget. Well, sometimes there's like you think you've covered something, or you think you've gotten something down, and you get it in post, and you start trying to mechanically yeah. get the puzzle to work, and you're like, it's not working. And you realize, oh, and now we've got to either solve that problem or go out and reshoot or something. Oh, there's always inserts. I'm a big fan of of, of inserts of inserts and ideally inserts that you shoot on the day, so you cannot just shoot them as single simple inserts that are disconnected from anything else. It's best if you can kind of connect it to a close-up or or a shot tilt down to something that helps you tell the story but to get you out of a pinch and we did that in Coronado to a certain degree sometimes you know you come up with a cool insert that helps tell the story that's sort of connected to the scene and that helps you get around the fact that he didn't have the reverse or didn't have this or that and the other so there's a distinction here between two different kinds of inserts you're talking about your preference Mm -hmm. is on the day Mm -hmm. with your a team where you're doing a tilt down from a face into yeah. a close up of somebody grabbing something, for yeah. instance, yeah. versus an isolated lock off cutaway insert of yeah. a hand that could be anybody yes. grabbing a thing that yeah. we could shoot weeks later off the schedule. To solve a problem, you'll go for the second version. But of course, but if you can on your day, you you try and grab that stuff yeah, with your absolutely. actors. Absolutely, that's always better. Inserts, meaning there's details, there's some specificity about inserts that directs the eye of the viewer to something specific, you know, it makes yeah, it more tangible. It's always granular it's storytelling exactly. details exactly. to make sure the audience is on board with the next beat or whatever yeah. it is. But but there's also some, in all of my recent movies, I've always ended up shooting some inserts in my backyard with my own camera with some stuff that I just scrounge together that I either get from the prop house or make myself. And there's there's some some satisfaction in that actually. It's just is like it, now why do you think that is? I'm curious. What what like you think you're just getting more confident with what you're shooting on set and then realizing it's not enough or no. or you're just making conscious choices on the day to leave that stuff off. Uh you know, sometimes things yeah you don't get. It would be nice to have that. But most of the stuff, most of these inserts, lack thereof, come out in the editing where you're like, oh, man, I need I need to see this piece that he just dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, or it would wouldn't be nice to have another POV of this little tablet or uh, an insert of the whatever, like mm-hmm. little little things or the knife or the, the gun holster or whatever. And then you try to see if you find some 
backdrop in the backyard in a plant or a wall that looks somewhat right. similar. <laughs> right, right. Um, now, this might seem obvious, but I'm wondering if you can just fill it in with your own words. What is it about shooting an insert with your A-team, with your actor, that makes it worth doing on the day to you? Well, th- that's a fine line because, yes, you don't want to have a team of 60 people standing around you shooting a coffee mug. You know, it, it, might, it could be a waste of talent and time and money. But if it's, let's put it this way, all right, the, an example from, not, not from me, but if you see a plastic cup on a dashboard and you tilt down to it and there's concentric rings forming on that plastic cup because a dinosaur steps on the ground somewhere in the distance, that's fantastic. And if you do that on set with everything real and you tilt down from a face to that thing, then that's really good storytelling. Sometimes over those details and, and what I call inserts, then that the storytelling becomes very specific and very, very clear. So that would be an example of money well spent. But you can also go overboard. I mean, at the end of the day, it's another thing that I, of course, learn during Coronado and, and keep learning on every movie that where your real money is always in the face of your principal actors. That's all you're here for. <laughs> that's everything, you know. And if you have emotion in their eyes that is real and true and you capture that in a close-up or in a nice shot, that's that's your job. That's your job. Everything else is window dressing. On that point, let's move on to the last part of the show. And that's uh, and this is why I call it the circle takes. These are the takeaways. These are the moments mm-hmm. that you circled for yourself as mm-hmm. teachable moments to yourself in the process. It being your first film and you being... A director who's now made how many more six. films? Six other films. Mm-hmm. I think, um, no, six total. So six total. Five other, five other films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to a degree, increasingly more complicated and mm-hmm. bigger budgets and bigger names. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest thing about this first film that surprised you? Surprise in a positive or a negative? Either way. Something about the experience that hadn't occurred to you. Mm-hmm. That was surprising. Well, uh, I think I learned the most during Carnado about the process of being a feature director. That was the biggest sort of new experience that I had with it. The, the process of making a feature is so distinctly different from a fe- from a short film. Not just the length of it all, but just it's a different animal altogether. And what it is that a director ideally is supposed to focus on and keep an eye on, getting a sense of what the movie is as a as a whole as a as an entire product Uh, do you remember do you remember what your initial idea stepping into it was as a short filmmaker you had one idea about that was well remember what that feeling i mean i will say that looking at the movie now also it's still true that there are moments and scenes and sequences in the movie that i think are quite good there are others that are quite bad but the quality of a movie is not defined by the sum of its elements. It's it's more than that, you know. It's not just, I was under the impression that a movie is, if you have a good idea on each scene, that it's going to make a good movie. No, it's more than that, you know. You need to have an overarching idea of what a movie is really about and get a sense of... That's actually something that I learned a lot from, from Ed Neumeier when I was working with him on Starship Troopers, that you really as a... And maybe that's his writer's mind that speaks to that, where he says, you know, you really need to understand the theme, what the theme is and mm-hmm. of your story. The theme, of course, might be what you think it is, might be something else once you're done with it, but always getting a sense or, or trying to find out and pinpoint 
what a movie is all about and finding ways to express that with every tool that you've been given and work toward that same goal. That's more important than just lining up a bunch of individually well thought out sequences. Sure. You know, yeah. as an editor, when I'm working on a film, getting getting a film down to, you know, the the long assembled version to the tight final, mm-hmm. I always ask a filmmaker to think about story, character, or theme, mm-hmm. and I always tell them pick two mm-hmm. because if you can't identify that that scene is playing at least two of those things, mm-hmm. ideally it should be playing three. Yeah. But if it's not playing at least two of those, there's a good chance that scene shouldn't be in your movie. But that's exactly the point. It could be a great scene all by itself. Right. A great scene that goes on a reel and makes you look really good. doesn't mean it makes a good movie. Right. And identifying that is a trick. Absolutely true. And I think the theme is always a function of character, ideally. It should be. That's the right theme. If you find the theme that's correct. I mean, if it's working intrinsically well character is informing theme yes. as well yeah you know it's characters working toward the yeah. theme or, or characters is divined by yeah. the theme but you know it's the on the on my very last movie i had this sort of really cool experience with tom berenger this was the the seventh part of the sniper series now for the first time we had the the two principal players of the original sniper from 1993 uh, which is tom berenger and billy zane together again in, in a movie which was fun of, in of itself People that are now 20 years older and, and still play the same characters and come together again. That was really right. fun. But also, it was a story of the father and the son. Because the, the son, uh, Brandon Beckett, played by Chad Michael Collins, had these uh, bunch of scenes with his dad. Now, <laughs> in pre-production, it was not quite clear if Berenger is going to play the part. So the script was kind of loose about whether that character is his dad or not, which is not helpful right. in creating great <laughs> drama if you can't commit. You know, it's like, whoa. So <laughs> it means a lot if it's his dad. Yeah, it and doesn't mean as much at all. That's, it that's yeah. the story. You can't. It's inevitable. Yeah. You if you cast the dad in the yeah. story of of a guy who's going through some adventure and gets clear yeah. advice and direction from his now dad. Yeah. Well, it suddenly it's now a, now it's thematic. That's that <laughs> that's what the movie must be about. You can't <laughs> deny that. You can't just right. say, oh, I'm your dad too. But and it's also <laughs> an strange dad that he hasn't seen in years, and now suddenly. Right. So I go like, wow, okay. None of these scenes reflect that at this point. So what do we do? And I even had some scenes in there that they specifically threw in there because we had Behringer and we wanted to have him for more screen time. The scene didn't ask for him. And naturally, there was, there was nothing in that scene. So I remember sitting down with Tom going, okay, what do we do here? And he also said, oh, man, this is, this is what do we do here? This is horrible. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. I understand. So, But we have a, now we have well, a chance. We, at least so, he recognized yes, that it and, was... Improvable, and it was him who came up with just some beautiful stuff, and it suddenly very much had found its place in the story and and really anchored the story with some emotion, and that stuff. Do you I think mean, it's because he, as an actor, understands theme? Oh, totally, totally, absolutely, and he's he's able to bring it too mm-hmm. on a very small footprint. You know, it's not a long monologue or anything like right. that. No. Just like a little interaction. We're just instilling the tiniest moments with that. Exactly. But suddenly became an emotional thing and he had some truth, you know. So, and that's sort of the stuff that I did not glean in, in, that I didn't understand, I think, sufficiently in Coronado, which was much distracted by, well, and then the bridge is going to be that tall and then, you know, it's going to be... That's lots of toys to distract you. Yeah, exactly. And then you go like, wow, it's not, it's, yes, of course, it makes for a fantastic trailer. Right, right. (laughs) But people want more. Was there anything that you made a note of during or after the process <laughs> where you thought, I'm not doing that again? Yes. 
I I actually made a note. I specifically remember the moment. This was like when we were headed toward the nuttier, you know, the d- darkest sort of spot in the whole production. I remember distinctly driving in the van in the morning, early in the morning. We were already getting really tired and fed up with all this. And we were headed again into this prison yard, which was the ex-prison yard, which is our sort of studio for lack of a better place for anyone who uh, hasn't seen the behind the scenes of the film the prison yard is plays for a prison yard and about 10 other locations (laughs) it's sort of your home base and it was miserable because it's rat infested and just a place with very lots of bad vibes right naturally and I remember telling myself, Claudio, remember, you, you never want to do this again. Just don't ever get yourself in this position ever again. This is not worth it. This is horrible. And by I that position, you mean? Directing a feature film. Just, <laughs> seriously. I thought, this is horrible. What have I done? I should never attempt this again. This can only fail. And I feel horrible. I want to be as far away from this as possible. And I still have to go get through the day. I'm <laughs> right. sure it affected you know, everybody else. That's the other thing as a director. Right. Your mood immediately spreads out to the crew. So right. it probably sent us on a little bit of a downward spiral. But I remember distinctly thinking, wow, this is horrible. And then, but it then it then had ways of turning around at, at the end, even at the end of production. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Let's do this again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just simple-minded that way. Have you had that same feeling in any other films that you've made? Yeah, but yes, but I knew what it meant. Right. I, I had a better understanding of, okay, this is just going to be, this is just bad for it's now. It's just a hard day. It's a hard day. <laughs> and it's a hard phase. I know at the end, I'll be terribly proud of what we've accomplished and it's worth sitting this out and figuring it out the bigger the challenge the greater the victory when you come out the other end right was there anything on this film that wound up being more difficult than you thought it would be going into it in other words was there something that you going into this film you thought well i've got that part down that'll be easy and then it wound up not being so yeah i mean everything (laughs) (laughs) no seriously it was absolutely everything i think we were the only reason why we were able to complete it in some fashion i thought was because we were we were quite blue-eyed and very enthusiastic and and naive about it Uh, and that was our saving grace i believe and even retaining a little bit of that throughout uh, just going like are we you know convincing ourselves we can do this Um, you just did you didn't know enough to stop so you just kept going yeah and if we were just you know there was no return we had to kind of do it but maybe on a more serious or specific note i think what i hinted at as a director really having command over your story um, and what this is all about and why this year what kind of meaning it carries whether it's a silly meaning or a profound meaning doesn't matter but Mm -hmm. a meaning like a focal point of what we're doing here that certainly is something that I underestimated I didn't quite know how to grab the meaning of this movie to us was to impress people with production value now that's not a me that's not the storytelling it's not yeah, that's you know, not something that comes cares. out of the story yeah. you can you can sprinkle that in yeah that, that's an approach as a production and you can right. do that it's fine on the flip side I, I do look at the movie what i like about it um and i think where it speaks some truth and holds some truth is the the playfulness that it has in there and the sort of the unflappable belief that something can be done even if we don't have the tools to do it you know mm-hmm. there's some spirit behind this that almost makes me wish i could do a sequel <laughs> <laughs> you know was there something that was easier than you thought it would be going into it anything that on the approach in the pre-production that mm-hmm. you saw that you thought to yourself that's going to be daunting and then when you got there, you thought, well, actually, that was that went smoother than I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's single instances where 
for instance, the shot that maybe had the biggest sort of resonance for a while in the visual effects community and uh, certainly was our what we call our signature shot, which is the shot of the helicopter coming out of the waterfall, which we were not confident we could do in a believable enough fashion. And that just came together much faster and much more easily than we thought it would ever come together. But that's something that you would, as a visual effects team, had thought... Yeah, we were not confident. That might not even play yeah but i think that you always have these things where you go like oh wait a minute this 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 is simpler than we thought but but most of the time you go like oh no it's not quite (laughs) (laughs) not quite as good so i always like to end with you offering any advice that you can give Mm -hmm. and this would be to an aspiring Mm -hmm. filmmaker and this could be someone who maybe they went to film school maybe they're a youtuber who's gathering their ability to create content you know maybe this is someone who's working in the film business or maybe not maybe Mm -hmm. they're out in the middle of the country somewhere but this is someone who's thinking maybe it's my time maybe i'm gonna Mm -hmm. start chasing down that dream of making a film what kind of advice can you give someone who's setting out to do it for the first time in today's world? Well, it's, I mean, I'd, I'd encourage anybody to follow the dream and put down on paper what's in anybody's heart, what's in your heart, because I think that's always going to be the strongest thing out there. Whatever you really feel passionate about has a chance of coming about. And that was definitely the case with my first movie. I, I had an unflappable belief in doing this and doing it right and devoted everything, everything that I had. That in itself is extremely rewarding. I don't often look at my own movies. I don't watch them. But when I do, what I kind of like the most is that it's a very well-made family album of memories. <laughs> you know, It reminds right. me of the process and of the experiences that I've been able to gather from these films. And I think that's priceless because it encapsulates particularly in the case of Coronado it was just a phase where a whole group of people came together and had this tremendous belief and shared enthusiasm in making this happen and defying all the odds of making it happen and that in of itself is worth anything really I think that for the better part of four, three or four years, completely gave my life focus and and many other people focus and created friendships that will go on forever. And, you know, that to me is maybe as much the reason why we're doing this as it is to create art. It's not the art that you get out of if you're lucky. It's the creation of the art that 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 process that I think is the most inspiring thing and maybe the reason why we're doing it. Where I'm, why I feel like I'm doing this, regardless of what the outcome is. But that's not necessarily advice. I think the advice that I, one big big learning piece that I took out of this is that if you're ever in a position to be able to make a movie that has distribution. <laughs> At the beginning, that's very advisable. Because, <laughs> you you know, if you don't have that and you spend a lot of other people's money and you're sitting on it and nobody wants to buy it for a while, that can be very painful. Yeah. And then suddenly all these friendships that I talked about can get really tested. Yeah. If, if you do have, I'm sure if you're in a lucky situation where you have a studio behind it, that's phenomenal in the sense that you know that the movie will go out into the world and that right. that is rewarding do you think that should inhibit someone from oh no yeah trying their hand at making a no film? no absolutely not i mean i think then you just have to be prepared i wish i had been a little bit more prepared for this phase where the movie was done and i thought it was great or maybe not so much maybe i've uh, 
whatever it was just done <laughs> it was done is it hard for you to remember what you thought of the movie when it was finished oh yeah yeah it's then? always changed i mean I, I remember seeing the first cut and i remember seeing when we actually you know did the first mix and i felt like oh man this is horrible <laughs> you know you go through so right. many phases it's very Absolutely bipolar does. right post-production i always enjoy because it feels like the movie gets better and better and better and better and then you have these expectations set for yourself thinking this is now great and then you watch it in its entirety and you go like well still not great it's better but it's not great i go through big big phases and it's kind of painful but in that first movie i wish i had been more prepared about understanding that it can take quite a while for distribution to line up eventually had i known in that phase that eventually we will sell it to i think it was some somewhere around 35 countries worldwide and it did okay and it somehow miraculously made his money back <laughs> after a while right. it was not an instant success do you know how long it took to make the money back i don't know it had also had to do with the fact that our sales company pretty much after they made those sales went belly up <laughs> and, and, and and nobody collected it properly and it was, uh, it was just not 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 well um structured which all had to do with the fact had we had a distributor from the very beginning, it's less likely to happen in such a way, and it's more likely to go according to some plan, and, and you kind of can expect the movie to be right. out there quickly after you finish it. But just knowing that that process can take some time. Yes, that would would, would have been helpful and healthy for me to <laughs> to know ahead of time because yeah. it sort of it was tough. But that should none of that should be a, an <laughs> obstacle to anybody who believes in something. Because you, it's okay to just try. There can be um, quite uh, some reward uh, down the line. Well, Claudia Faye, thank you so much for being on The Circle Take. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. That's our show for today. The Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's hopefully more episodes for you to check out. Like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where we post photos from our conversations schedule updates and previews of upcoming shows and of course all of this the podcast links clips notes and more is all on our website at thecircletake.com thanks for listening i'm jason schmid and you can circle that one